forbids us to give tribute to Caesar. Now, this, this is about taxes. The Jewish leaders complained to Pilate that Jesus taught his followers to stiff the government when it comes to paying what you owe. Is that what Jesus taught? That is not what Jesus taught. In fact, Jesus explicitly taught the reverse. The, the scribes and the chief priests asked Jesus point blank in, in Luke 20, 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And Jesus' answer to them couldn't be clearer if he painted them a picture. Luke twenty two twenty five. he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In time, this would become such a given among the followers of Jesus that the Apostle Paul would write to the, the church in Rome in Romans thirteen seven, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In other words, yes, it's lawful to pay your taxes. So pay your taxes. The Jewish leaders aren't just accusing Jesus here. They are falsely accusing Jesus here. They're perjuring themselves. They're breaking the Mosaic law. They're bearing false witness. Finally, they claim in verse 2, this man is saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, it's, it's highly unlikely that Pilate knew what Christ meant. That's why they add the phrase a king. Now, this one Pilate's interested in. He takes the bait. So he says in verses 3 and 4, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. What's fascinating, of course, is that Jesus doesn't deny this claim. If that's their accusation, he's guilty as charged. His response to the Pilate, you've said so, is what New Testament scholar Daryl Bott calls a tacit affirmation of Pilate's question. I, I agree with that. I think that's right. Jesus' response to Pilate's question implies that the answer is yes. You have said so. It is as you say. I am the king of the Jews. Nevertheless, Pilate is, is underwhelmed. He's He's not threatened by Jesus or by any of the accusations that they lay at his feet concerning him. And for the first time, but, but clearly not the last in this text, Pilate says to them, I find no guilt in this man. And then we come to verse 5. Verse 5, we see the Jewish leaders like a dog with a true toy. They just simply won't let it go. And so Luke tells us in verse 5, but they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea and from all Galilee, even to this place. Now, the reference to Galilee gives Pilate an idea that we're going to tackle in verse 6 and in point 2. But at this point, let's just begin to make some application. The sinful sentence passed upon Jesus doesn't wreck God's purposes. It reveals his unstoppable providence. Well, How? Well, in this case, the condemnation of Christ displays God's design by exposing the blindness of Israel. Everything is backwards about this, isn't it? If you think this is frontwards, you're thinking the wrong way. He's their king. He's the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Moses wrote of him. The kings pointed toward him. The prophets spoke of him. Every psalm whispers his name. 
Over the space of three years of his earthly ministry, Jesus fulfilled prophecy and healed the sick and taught with unprecedented authority. He cast out demons and fed thousands. And despite all of these signs, the Jewish people, by and large, totally reject him, particularly the leadership. Why? Because the Bible says that they would. There's a lot of places we could go in the scriptures to establish this, but Romans 11 is as clear as any. Romans eleven seven to 12, we read, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor and eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I asked, Do they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, we could go on to read the rest of Romans 11. I hope you you might just for homework this week. But it makes the point. The sinful sentence passed upon Jesus doesn't, doesn't wreck God's purposes. It reveals his unstoppable providence. Tragic as the Jewish rejection of Jesus is, even down to this very day, their rejection of him means life for folks like us, provided that most everyone here, if not everyone here, is a Gentile. And one day, when Jesus returns, it will mean life for his people too. When they look upon him whom they have pierced, And they turn to Christ in the end in a massive future conversion. If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? One day, all Israel will be saved. And until then, there will always be a remnant. So don't regard your your Jewish friends or neighbors or coworkers or classmates when it comes to your list of five. Romans 1.16 is abundantly clear that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Oh, we forget that today. Despite the partial hardening that's come upon Israel, be hopeful in Jewish evangelism. Nevertheless, the, the condemnation of Christ displays God's design. It displays it by exposing the blindness of Israel. Second point today, the condemnation of Christ displays God's design by acquainting strange bedfellows. The condemnation of Christ displays God's design by acquainting strange bedfellows. You know that phrase, strange bedfellows? It's over 400 years old. Like a lot of stock phrases, it comes from the pen of William Shakespeare. In 1610, Shakespeare published his famous play, The Tempest. In Act act 2, scene 2, Thunder says this, Alas, the storm has come again. my, My best way is to creep under this gabardine. There's no other shelter hereabout. Misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. 
Over time, we've, we've used the word strange bedfellows to speak of an unusual combination of people, particularly when it comes to political alliances. It refers to what we sometimes call, call, call co-belligerence, um, folks that are typically at odds with one another but make common cause against a perceived threat to them both. Well, that's what we see here emerging between Pontius Pilate and Herod. So let's read about it. Uh, Luke 23, verses 6 to 16. Luke 23, verse 6, it says, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, and neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish and release him. Now, if you recall in verse 5, the Jewish leaders make reference to the region of Galilee when they're speaking of the ministry of Jesus, right? That's up north about 80 miles or so from Jerusalem. Pilate didn't know Jesus was from Galilee, and and we can speculate all day long as to why he actually did it. The text doesn't tell us explicitly, but Pilate knows that Jesus is in charge of that district, and he also knows that Herod is in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And so he passes the buck to Herod. So Jesus is taken to Herod, and Herod is more than happy for the opportunity. Verse 8 tells us when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he'd heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, this should make us uneasy. Herod's very glad to be with Jesus. He long desired to see him. But what he had was nothing more than a morbid curiosity about him. Herod's interest in Jesus is a little bit like our interest in a circus sideshow. He wants to see him perform a miracle. And if you're tracking with Luke's gospel to this point, this doesn't bode well for Herod. Uh, the Jewish leaders in Luke 4, 23 and 24, uh, the crowds in Luke eleven twenty nine, 29, even the devil himself in Luke chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, they all sought for Jesus to perform signs with zero intention of becoming his disciples. And so it is with Herod. In fact, even the Pharisees knew as early as Luke 13, 31, that Herod had a death wish for Jesus. So when Jesus gives him the silent treatment here in verse 9, Herod's tone changes considerably, doesn't it? We read in verse 11, Herod with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in a splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And here's the key verse, I think, in verse 12. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So what do we have here? We have what you might call strange bedfellows. 
Pilate and Herod have absolutely no natural affinity with one another. This passage explicitly tells us that before they had been at enmity with each other, they had been at cross purposes with each other. Before what? Before Jesus walked into their lives. And what we find here in verse 15, ironically, is that neither Pilate nor Herod find him guilty of any formal crime. They have absolutely no evidence to condemn him. Nevertheless, their, their mutual contempt for Jesus and the disturbance that he's brought into their community is palpable, strong enough to, to draw them together in alliance with each other. As the text says, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. Now, can you smell the application coming here? Jesus says in John 15, 18 to 20, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world because I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Friends, I don't have to tell you that over the last generation, our culture has been rapidly changing. Newsweek magazine hailed the year before I was born, 1976, as the year of the evangelical. Did you know that? The year of the evangelical. And yet, in the years since that time, and especially since the turn of the 21st century, the term evangelical has become one that is increasingly attached to condescension and to disdain. Evangelical means something akin to Christian jihadist today. Those who tend to align themselves against our worldview don't typically do so because they have so much otherwise in common. Rather, as with Pilate and Herod, Herod, their affinity with one another is birthed out of a mutual distaste for and a derision of biblical Christianity. From the public marketplace to public education, from the elite in our nation's entertainment industry to the elite in our nation's media outlets, from many throughout our halls of government to the vast majority who even name the name of Christ in many of our mainline American churches. Strange bedfellows. On the surface of it, these groups aren't drawn together because they love one another. They're drawn together because they despise the gospel. Psalm 2 asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Which is to say, if you follow Jesus and you look around our community or our nation and you're tempted to imagine that things are falling apart, don't believe it for a minute. Things aren't falling apart. Things are falling into place. The sinful sentence passed upon Jesus doesn't wreck God's purposes It reveals his unstoppable providence. The condemnation of Christ displays God's design by acquainting strange bedfellows. Final point today, and it's an encouraging one, I guarantee it. The condemnation of Christ displays God's design 
by setting the guilty free. The condemnation of Christ displays God's design by setting the guilty free. In the time that remains today, I'd like to call our attention to the one of the most exquisite portraits of the gospel in all of the scriptures, which is saying something, because the Bible is filled with exquisite portraits of the gospel. But this, in verses 18 to 25, this is special. It's special, I think, for at least three reasons. It's special first because it's not a parable. It's historical. This actually happened. Secondly, it's special because it's so outrageous. It's scandalous, just like the gospel. And third, it's special because it's one of those portraits of the gospel that kind of flies under the radar. It's just not one that I tend to meditate on very much, and I wonder if you do too. Follow along with me, and I'll read Luke 23, 18 to 25. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown in prison for an insurrection started in the city and, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! And a third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt-deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. There are reversals all over these eight verses. Allow me to flag three of them as we do some gospel application here. First, the prisoner's name, Barabbas. It's a good Jewish name. Bar Abba literally means son of the father. Son of the father. Now, in Brian's sermon a week ago, he preached three titles of our Lord from last week's passage. Do you remember them? Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God. And yet here in verse 18 we read, But they all cried out together, Away with this man, this man meaning Jesus, and release for us Bar-Abbas. That is, release to us the Son of the Father. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the true Son of the Father. He's Bar-Abba. He's the true Barabbas, this is a reversal. Second, consider the prisoner's crime. Verses 19 and 25 tell us that Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection that started in the city and for murder. Now, the Jewish leaders didn't dare charge Jesus with murder. They knew they didn't have that. But they do allege in verses 2 and 5 that we found this man misleading our nation. He stirs up the people. You see what's going on here? Daryl Bach puts it this way. Ironically, Barabbas did what Jesus is being accused of. And Jesus suffers on behalf of Barabbas. 
Which brings us to the third and final reversal. Consider the great exchange. Verse 18, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Verse 25, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. For him they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. You know, part of growing in maturity in Bible reading over the years is beginning to see ourselves in the mirror of Scripture when our image emerges. Mount Evangelical Free Church, we are Barabbas. Martin Luther put it this way, that is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours but Christ's and the righteousness of Christ ours that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. In the same manner, he is grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded. In the same manner, we rejoice in glory in his righteousness. Luther's image of the great exchange is, is rooted in the scandal of texts like Romans 4.5. Romans 4.5 proclaims, And to the one who does not work, But who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Or even more immediately, the great exchange is rooted in a text like 2 Corinthians 5.21, which assures us that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or finally, in 1 Peter 3.18, which reminds us that Christ also suffered once for sins, just like this passage, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the great exchange, and it's at the very heart of the Christian faith because it's at the very heart of the Christian gospel. Jerry Bridges once said, on your worst days, you are never beyond your, your reach, the reach of God's grace, but on your best days, you are never beyond your need for God's grace. And if we think soberly about it for five seconds, this, truth, this text tells us the truth, tells us why. We're Barabbas. The condemnation of Christ displays God's design by setting the guilty free. Let's review. The sinful sentence passed upon Jesus doesn't wreck God's purposes. It reveals his unstoppable providence. The condemnation of Christ displays God's design, doing doing it three ways. First, by exposing the blindness of Israel. Second, by acquainting strange bedfellows. And third, by setting the guilty free. This is good news for us, brothers and sisters. And it's good news for anyone who will turn to God in Christ by grace, through faith, and embrace him and his promises. This text looks like everything's falling apart, doesn't it? But looked at it through the lens of God's sovereignty, everything's falling into place. My wife and I used to have a a saying that we shared with our kids when they were little, and we still say it together because it's so helpful. You may know it too. When things don't go the way they should, God always makes them turn for good. You believe that? You should believe it. 
It's a rock-solid certainty for those who belong to him. As Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Jesus experiences that here. And in Romans, Romans 8, 28, it's not just the equivalent, the New Testament equivalent of Genesis 15, 20, it's a superior promise. It's a superior promise because it tells us that everything that comes our way, including the most exquisite suffering that we will ever endure in this life, has been father-filtered, if you like. It's perhaps one of the most precious promises that we have as believers. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So while the assurance of this truth expands to include all things in Romans 8, 28, the application of this truth narrows to include only believers. Notice that Romans 8, 28 is a truth for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. If that's not you today, it can be. Turn from your sin in this moment and put your faith in Jesus as the Savior and Lord and supreme treasure of your life. If you want to know more of what it means to take that step, we'll have some folks down here in front after the doxology who would love to talk with you and pray with you about that. You're in the right church and you're in the right season of life together as we consider this sermon series, as we walk steadily toward the season of Lent. Next week, we come to the crucifixion as we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And I hope you'll make plans to join us then. But right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, we look at the, the clouds beginning to gather on Good Friday in Luke 23, and it just looks like everything is wrong. Israel is rejecting her king. Pilate and Herod are getting along, and Barabbas goes free. And yet, as we step back, as we consider what the book of Acts says, that truly in this city, 2,000 years ago, were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all of them to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. As we'll see next week, O oh God, every hammer blow that fell upon your son was the work of the Father. The prophet Isaiah tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. God, you so loved the world that you gave your one and only son that whoever would believe in you would not perish but have everlasting life. How I pray, Lord God, that in a moment like this, you would be doing the deep magic of regeneration. Father, use the words of the gospel to form an effectual call in the lives of your people. Draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself. May Jesus and all that he has accomplished be on full display on a morning like this. 
And may we come to see and savor Christ and all that he is for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this truth. All of us who name your name, we take courage and we feed on you in our hearts by faith in this text. We ask that you would use it now, use it to strengthen our resolve this week as we leave this place together, linked arm in arm, to be and make disciples of Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen.